Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Hey, what's what's up, up, you guys? guys? I'm Catherine. And I'm Haley. And we are Saturdays Are For The Ghouls, a podcast on the Podmoth Network. We cover all things spooky, like horror movies, true crime, the supernatural, and spooky stories. In the most chaotic way possible. So join your favorite ghoul friends every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And become a spooky babe! (laughs) So spooky babes, we'll see you in your nightmares! Well, Declan, what story have you got for us today? Today, I'm going to be talking about Marianne Backmire. Meyer, sorry. Backmire. Not Backmire. What's, it, what's what her we, name? What are you going to be telling us about? Marianne Bachmeyer. Bachmeyer. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. I am going to be telling you about some uh, things that happen to people after they die, theoretically. So... Hmm. I'll get into it more. I didn't want to like specifically say because then I'm going to be saying it like over and over and over again because the drink is named after what my story is about. So this is the Mm -hmm. near-death experience drink. I was shocked that I found a drink with the exact same name of the story that I'm doing. So that's why I picked the drink. But... It could be, a. it sounds like a really weird drink, so we'll see if it's any good or not. But the drink is one part Jägermeister, one part triple sec, two parts vodka, one part cranberry juice, and one dash of Angostura bitters. So the steps are to combine all ingredients in a shaker with ice and shake well. Strain into a glass. This sounds fucking gross. I do not. It does sound gross. I want to drink this. But I will say that the Jaeger has surprised me in the past. So it could be, it could be decent. I just don't see it going very, very well with cranberry juice, but let's try it. Well, you never know. It's a weird color. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of it. It's not great it's not terrible it just it's a weird mixture it's, i don't the jägermeister doesn't weird. belong i don't think i could mm. be pretty good without the jägermeister that is basically just a bit vodka cranberry with triple second yeah the jäger gives it like a like a deeper taste but i don't know that it meh. I don't know. It's weird. It's just kind of like dirty a little bit. 
It does. How did, it yeah. does taste a little dirty. So, um, my story to go with this, like I said, is near-death experiences, which I don't think, I think we've like kind of talked about like you and I possibly doing something like this. So it, uh, I'm excited to actually get into, there are a lot more stories than I would have ever thought possible. Um, I'm going to go over just a couple of stories, but I'm going to talk more about what it is. Um, but first, do you know what thanatophobia is? Don't think so. No, I had to look up what it was. Well, I had to look up what the name was. It's the, um, it's a severe fear of death, and it's estimated that 20% of the U.S. population has it. Um, it's not mm. just, oh, gosh, it would be sad to die or it would be scary to die or whatever, but it's an intense fear that um, you have of death or the process of dying. Some people um, might have the fear of dying that doesn't necessarily reach the clinical level with the intensity, but... Um, we're not really talking about that kind of situation. So imagine what it would be like to be on the verge of death. And instead of having feelings of fear, you have almost a euphoric experience. And then you don't actually die. Hmm. That would, wouldn't that be weird? That would be weird. So some people believe that they have had something like this when they have been close to death and what many call a near-death experience, often referred to as NDE, which I am going to say a few times rather than saying the whole thing because that gets a little tiresome on the mouth. So Usually incorporating, um, NDEs usually incorporate an out-of-body experience, but there are some accounts of out-of-body experiences that don't involve nearly dying. So essentially that would be like if you weren't on the verge of death, you were, you know, some people have talked about out-of-body experiences related to like meditation or severe trauma, um, psychological trauma, those kind of things. But not actually being close to death. So we're not talking about those, but that might be a fun thing to talk about in the future. We're just going to be talking about the dying part. One study showed that an estimated 9 million people in the U.S. have reported having a near-death experience, which 9 million is a lot of people, and that shocked the shit out of me. I was not expecting like there to be that many. I feel like there's a lot to like, near death it seems like it could happen to anyone right 
well, almost getting I hit mean, by a car or something. Almost like. dying. Well, no, we're talking about like what happens, not just like, oh, I almost died. No. I'm going to tell you about what these entail in a minute. So accounts of these experiences have been reported for centuries in approximately 95% of the world's population. The term near-death experience became more popular in the mid-1970s when it was used to describe multiple elements that often occur to individuals reporting them. So those typically are experiencing um, an out-of-body experience, a panoramic review of your life, a light, a tunnel, or a border. And the border is typically not like a physical border necessarily, but like kind of a a border of determination. So people that have commented on the border phenomena have said that they are in a situation where they have to choose if they're going to live or if they're going to continue with dying or the person is told that they have to turn back from this border because they're not supposed to die yet. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're kind of given a choice. It's like, are you ready to die now or do you want to go back and try again? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hmm. NDEs fall in two different categories, positive and negative. The positive ones often have similar characteristics, like um, a feeling that you are detaching from your body and or levitating. Sometimes even Mm. seeing your physical body below you. That's the out-of-body experience part. Okay. Um, A lot of people um, see dead relatives. There's uh, often a description of feeling at peace or security, as well as intense feelings of joy or happiness. Um. Feelings of acceptance or unconditional love. And it's not like necessarily that someone that you know that's died is telling you that, oh, we love you. But it's everyone described like this overwhelming sense that they just realized that they were loved. Unconditionally, Mm -hmm. this overwhelming sensation of love. Um, some people describe feeling, um, closure or removal from the world. Oftentimes there's a review of your lifetime events. So like you see your entire life. Some people have said like from the very beginning, um, others have said like little snippets of like, oh, I saw this happen. And some people even said that they went through their review of life and it was their perspective that they saw, then another person's perspective, and then the whole of the universe's perspective. So like if you and I are having an interaction and I'm having a near-death experience, I might review this particular interaction, remembering it from my point of view, but then I would also experience it from your point of view and then from the universe's point of view. I don't know. I don't, don't know, know what, what that, that would be like. 
I don't really the either. Universe's point of view. Yeah, like literally this interaction this and down. how it how it works for everybody else. Everyone else's view oh of this event. It would be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would like it. I don't think I would like it either. I think no. that would be freaky. But people say it's like amazing. I don't I just don't get it. It seems overwhelming to me. I wanted I my own point of view is bad enough. I don't think I need to know everybody else's point of view. <laughs> yeah, um no a lot of people describe seeing a light at the end of a darkness, like through a tunnel or a staircase. Sometimes people are even immersed in a light that is telepathically communicating with them. Those are pretty much the the base basic ones that people relate to positive experiences. There are negative experiences um, that are definitely not described as warm and fuzzy. People don't like yeah. the negative experiences. They often involve feelings of anguish or devastation, being distressed, um, sensing a large void or vast emptiness. So like a big, you're just in the middle of blackness basically, where you don't see anything, but you sense that there's literally nothing around you. Um, and some people describe seeing something um, that they related to hell or the devil. So. So, question. Yes. Did they say what percentage of these were like religious people? Like No, but there are a lot of people from both camps. And, okay. and some of the people did discuss, like, it didn't seem to be that you had to necessarily have a religious or spiritual belief about what, what's beyond death. A lot of people develop an intense level of spirituality after the event, though. Okay. But we're going to talk a little bit more um, about, like, your preconceived ideas might affect what you're seeing on the other side. So I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. Positive or negative. Thinking. Yeah. Positive like, or negative in nature. If that's what you're thinking all the time, then it would make sense yes. that like it translates into that experience. Yes. So the example that um that I was reading was like if you believe in a single God, then your experience is likely to be a single God and heaven when you if you have an experience, but if you believe in more of like multiple gods and a, you know, like the universe of spirituality versus a set religion, then you're going to have more of that kind of an experience than something that would not align with your, your natural beliefs. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So like what I was thinking. Somebody from one religion, you know, like a Hindu that doesn't have a single god belief isn't going to necessarily 
have a near-death experience and then all of a sudden, hey, guess what? You only get to see a single God because that's all there is. They're not going to have a similar experience, but they would still have an experience. Mm-hmm. So, weird. yeah. Um, positive or negative in nature, the experiences don't necessarily contain all of the elements mentioned and might only have a few of them. They typically occur when someone is clinically dying, but the process is reversed and the person doesn't actually die. So an example would be like if you were dying and somebody gave you CPR to reverse your dying process or a drastic event took place to reverse the process of death and then you didn't actually die. I'm going to give some examples and talk about some people's specific experiences in a little bit. Uh, Like, excuse me, the first clinical description of this experience was noted in 1892 and usually happened to people who had come close to dying. Shocking. These individuals were sometimes people involved in a war or someone who had fallen from a height and sometimes people who had almost drowned. Over the years, some have theorized that NDEs are simply hallucinations, while others believe the experience is truly a religious event, and some believe them to be fragmented integration of multiple sensory systems in the body. So, on a scientific level, some people are saying, well, it, you're just, you're your brain is overwhelmed because normally when you're conscious and you're aware of things, you can discern like, oh, this is touching my hand and I have socks on my feet and I'm hearing a sound. But scientifically, some people are saying your brain just can't integrate all that information when you're in the process of having a near, you know, you're almost dead. Your brain is like, oh, there's this sound over here and not processing all of the things together. So some people, that's what their, that's what their explanation of what this is. These experiences occur globally and in people with all different types of cultural backgrounds, which can influence the interpretation of the event, like I was saying. So it's not necessarily that it's only religious people that are having these events and these experiences, but it influences what they see on the other side. So someone with a religious belief of God and angels might interpret the light as heaven and angels, while someone from a different religious culture might view the light as a messenger of the God of death versus hey, this is God itself. People who have reported NDEs often have interesting changes in their personalities afterwards. Common changes include a greater appreciation for life. Well, that just kind of goes without saying, I think. I mean, if you almost die, you might be like, I am so glad I didn't die. Life is good. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) Um, A lot of people have increased spirituality, but not necessarily an increase in religious beliefs. So those two things are separate and apart from each other. Um, They often no longer have a fear of death um, if they had feared it before. They have increased compassion for others, higher self-esteem, 
A lot of them have a lower desire to attain material wealth because they went to the other side and they said, money doesn't matter over here. So why do you care about that? I'm still materialistic and I still care about money. Sorry. Um, a lot of them have an increased desire to learn and higher levels of self-awareness. They might also have an increased sense of purpose and increase in environmental and planetary awareness. So like they suddenly realize, oh, maybe we shouldn't be killing the planet every chance we get. So they become a little bit more environmentally friendly. And some people even say that they have an increased sense of intuition. So like knowing things might happen in the future kind of thing. Some, yes. Sometimes though people experience negative effects that impact their personal relationships. There are multiple theories and explanation of what NDEs are and why they began. And of course, there are criticisms of each theory. Developing a research study to determine what exactly is happening during these experiences is basically impossible. I mean, how are you going to research that? Um, as e each report varies and is deeply personal and subjective to each individual, it's strongly related to their cultural beliefs prior to the event, like you were saying. Are they super religious? Do they believe in what's out there kind of thing. Um, but regardless of the explanation, there's no denying that the reports of these experiences have been happening for centuries across, across the globe and across cultural lines. So it's not just, you know, people who believe in this God or that God or this religion or that there's people are still having these experiences and reporting them. Um, so now I want to tell you, some specific stories. Um, I, there are, I'm not going to tell you 9 million stories of the people who say it. Um, I'm just going to give you three. I did look for negative stories as well, which are harder to come by. Um, a lot of them, like I was specifically looking for like, did somebody see hell on the other side? And then they came back and they were, you know, telling people about it. And I didn't look up everything. I didn't look up, I didn't exhaust the internet, but I really did have a hard time finding people that just had a negative experience. Some of them had like an initial, the whole vastness, darkness kind of thing. And they were distressed, but then it ended up being a positive thing in the end. So I'm not going to tell you any bad ones. I'm just going to tell you the good ones, some cool good ones that I found. So uh, one of them is from a lady named Pam Reynolds. She is a singer and a songwriter. She was traveling with her husband in 1991 when she suddenly couldn't remember how to talk. And she made a comment. I talk a lot, so I have never forgotten how to talk. So it was a drastic thing for her to just suddenly not be able to talk. She was 35 years old at the time. They took her to the hospital, had an MRI of her brain, and it showed that she had a large aneurysm on her brain stem, and it was leaking blood, which put it um, at a high risk of rupturing as well. So an aneurysm is like a balloon in a blood vessel that can pop and bad things happen. So they wanted to 
treat it. Um, and her best hope for treatment was brain surgery, but they had to do a very specific and special kind of surgery. The doctors needed to put her in a state called cardiac standstill. To do this, they had to chill her body. This is making down. me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too bad. It's not too bad. I'm not going to go into super gory detail. Um, yeah. Okay, but I will say they had to drain all the blood from her brain, um, which would allow them to cut the aneurysm without causing bleeding. Are you, you're even more uncomfortable now that I said they drained all the blood from her brain. <laughs> yes, I don't like that. Uh, okay, well, uh, I think that's like the Ooh. worst part. I think the well, yeah, I think that's the worst part. God, so that's so gross. <laughs> try not to think about it. Um, but the procedure would essentially put her in a very deep comatose state, yet she would still technically be alive. Her eyes were taped shut, and she was fill, uh, fitted with special headphones that would, like. Not just like the over-ear headphones like we have, but the in-ear like headphones um, so that it would cut out other noises. It played loud sounds um, that would allow the doctors to evaluate the brainstem activity during the procedure so that they would know when it was safe to continue, oops, I lied, to drain the blood. <sighs> Sorry, I had to bring that back up. <laughs> um, so they could start the surgical intervention. Pam describes leaving her body through the top of her head, rising above her body and seeing 20 people participating in the surgery. And the 20 people part is important. She could see the instruments being used on her. And you should be really glad I didn't describe the instruments. There was a description, but I didn't think it was necessary. She could describe the instruments. And she could say specifically what they look like. So it wasn't just like, oh, they were holding some tools. She had a description. I think she said one of them looked like a automatic toothbrush. Um, she heard conversations occurring between the professionals, the doctors and nurses and stuff. They were commenting on how the sides of her veins weren't appropriate Um she reported seeing a tunnel and a bright light. She believes that occurred at the time that her body flatlined. So her heart was, you know, she was put into that state, that cardiac standstill. She noted having conversations with her dead grandmother and an uncle who then returned with her to the operating room. Upon returning to the operating room, she could hear the song Hotel California by the Eagles playing. At that point, her uncle pushed her back into her body and the doctors revived her heart. She recalls at that That's moment, mm -hmm. <laughs> at that moment when they revived her heart, the song was um, on the line that says, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Which is that is, what they were playing through the headphones? No, they were playing it on like the speakers oh, okay. through the, like the, for the doctors and stuff to listen to. Okay. Yeah. 
Although Pam initially thought her experience was just a hallucination, she did mention the experience to her neurosurgeon a year later. His recollections of the event correlated with her reports, as did the medical reports later reviewed. So she, she was able to describe the instruments. She mentioned the conversation about her veins and even the song that was playing over the speakers. Everything checked out. So the song that was playing, her doctor did say, yes, we were listening to Hotel California over the speakers. And yes, there was a conversation about her veins not being the proper size. And they had, yeah, her description of what the instruments look like were what the instruments look like. Which is so weird. The skeptics, like of course. <laughs> I didn't think this so would make levels, you feel that like uncomfortable. This. Well, I'm <laughs> sorry to say like... I've got two more stories. I don't think the other ones are as bad. When you die, it just turns off. You don't have like any yeah. experience. Well, according to these Ugh. people, it does not. Ugh. <laughs> That's gross. Yep. So skeptics think that Pam just heard the conversations and that the sounds of the instruments um, prior to having the blood drain from her head and reaching full cardiac arrest, that that explained what her experiences were, that she just heard these things and that she made up all the rest. But of course, you know, the believers and Pam believed that the whole thing was real. So the next story is a lady named Anita Morjani. It's also a well-known account of an NDE. She has written a book about her experience called Dying to Be Me. Anita suffered from lymphatic cancer for several years, and in 2006, she went into a coma. Her husband brought her to the hospital, but the doctor told him there was no hope. Anita could hear the oncologist telling her husband that she would likely die within a few hours. Anita remembers hearing this terrible news and seeing the look of despair on her husband's face. She wanted to tell him everything was okay, but she wasn't able to do that because she was in a coma. So she describes like hearing this news and saying, I was trying to tell him it was okay. I was going to be fine, but she couldn't actually do anything because she was in a coma. Anita described seeing her physical body and thinking it was too small. She described feeling as if she were expanding beyond the confines of her body. So she's just like growing in size metaphorically. She became a very aware of her surroundings, different than she had felt before. Feelings of detaching emotionally from her physical ailing body. So because she'd been sick for so long, she suddenly has this experience of Anita experienced a new sense of joy and happiness. She no longer had any pain, sadness, or sorrow. She felt like she was being encompassed by unconditional love. She also experienced sensing family and loved ones who had died and been able to communicate with them telepathically. So they were speaking to each other without words. She could sense other beings around her 
that she had never met before, but felt that they had always been with her, protecting and loving her. She had an overwhelming Mm. sense of understanding, not only of the universe, but also of her disease. So she has a sudden realization that, oh, this is how the universe works. And this is why I've had cancer. And she just had a peace with it. Um, Time became irrelevant and anything she focused her consciousness on appeared in front of her, which would be kind of cool, I have to say. Like, I'm going to focus my consciousness on a red sports car convertible. That would be fantastic. (laughs) Uh, She then recognized that she had to make a decision to die or return to her physical body. Although initially she wanted to choose death, her new understanding of the universe made her choose life. After 30 hours, after first slipping into the coma, she opened her eyes to see her husband. Within weeks, her tumor started shrinking and disappearing. Which is freaking amazing because she had cancer for four years and they told her she was going to die. She now spreads her story throughout the world. So I have one more story. Although there were nine million others, but this story is unique in its perspective because the person that had the experience is a medical doctor. Dr. Evan Alexander is a neurosurgeon, so he has a special understanding of the brain and how it works. He has also written a book about his specific experience called Proof of Heaven. Dr. Alexander became suddenly ill and fell into a coma in 2008. He was taken to the hospital where they diagnosed him with a bacterial infection in the brain. The infection was so severe that it caused a substantial amount of pressure on his brain. The doctors initially assessed a moderate brain injury, but that quickly progressed to a severe level of injury within a short period of time. The type of bacteria involved didn't often cause brain infections in adults, but when it did, it was often fatal. So they're not holding out a lot of hope for this guy. Dr. Alexander had an interesting experience during his coma with a more spiritual twist than some of the others. Rather than starting his NDE with an out-of-body experience and seeing his body from a distance, his event started with what he described as a scorched earth feeling. So this is, like I said, some of those negative ones that I found started off with this kind of, ooh, things are kind of dark and gloomy, but then it gets less so. Um. It started in a primitive feeling and dark location. It was explained as an earthworm's eye view. I don't know if that's like a thing with some of these, but basically he felt like he was down below everything. He then encountered a spinning white light that was accompanied by a musical melody. The light served as a portal to an area filled with earth-like and spiritual creatures. Sorry, spiritual features, earth-like and spiritual features, although there were creatures once he got there. His description, I didn't want to, I don't typically like to do long quotes, but I thought that this quote really explained it 
better than what I could paraphrase it as. So his description is, quote, the Gateway Valley was filled with many earth-like and spiritual features, vibrant and dynamic plant life with flowers and buds blossoming richly and no signs of death or decay, waterfalls into sparkling crystal pools, thousands of beings dancing below with great joy and festivity, all fueled by swooping golden orbs in the sky above. Angelic choirs emanating chants and anthems that thundered through my awareness, and a lovely girl on a butterfly wing who proved months later to be central to my understanding of the reality of experience, end quote. So that's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. The chants and like hymns in the valley. It would be weird to like, I don't know. And usually like a person can only be dead for so long if they get revived, like before everything's. Yes. Like, he was in a coma. Can't be revived. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So, so he had some essentially. Time to in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he did. He was in a coma. The last lady was in a coma. The first lady, she was kind of in an induced coma, I guess you could say. Uh, the He said that the chants and the hymns in the valley served as another portal to what he called the core. The core was a return to darkness, but instead of it feeling sad, he said it felt um, like it was filled with an infinite healing power and loving from the creator. Some people might think of their creator as God, but Dr. Alexander believes the label of God is too narrow um, in its explanation. And he really thought that um, it was more encompassing. He explained an awe that he experienced. He refers to the creator as Om, which was the sound he heard from the angelic creatures and the chanting and stuff. Dr. Alexander was in a coma for seven days before suddenly opening his eyes. Many skeptics of NDEs like to explain away this, his experience as just a hallucination, but he contends that due to the severity of the infection, um, so the infection that was in his brain was putting a lot of pressure on the brain itself, and it was causing this severe level of injury. And according to him and the other brain doctors, evident in all of his scans and all of his tests, hallucinations would not have been a physical possibility due to the trauma on his brain. He now has a new level of acceptance and understanding in regards to spiritual enlightenment and the world beyond the physical body. And like I said, I looked for negative ones, but I couldn't find any. I found some people that were saying they had like visions of hell, but they didn't die. They weren't close to dying. They were just, you know, having hallucinations or visions or whatever, but it wasn't related to like a near death experience. So that is my story on near death experiences. Sorry to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like that. I just hate <laughs> listening to medical stories. Like they, I know. they wake me out so much. So I didn't enjoy that a lot. <laughs> 
that was. I'm sorry. Uh, I tried really to keep it at the first story <laughs> less gory. It wasn't too gory. Not gory. It's just like, oh god, I can't even think about it. Okay, so gross. Well, tell me your Draining brutal the blood story from the then. Brain, how is? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we usually talk about draining blood when it's related to brutal stories and it's gross. And, yeah. I you know, there's a level a of acceptance thing. to the gross stuff, but it, uh, yeah. it's like alien to me. It's like you got abducted and yeah. they're studying you. You got to take the blood <laughs> out of your brain. Gross. I like all yeah, the blood in my about... brain. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. talk about Marianne Bachmeyer. She was born on June 3rd, 1950. Her father was a retired SS officer and also an alcoholic. He was fairly abusive to his wife and daughter, which ultimately led to her parents' divorce. Do you mean her like SS officer in the Nazis? She, okay. Yeah, she was born in West Germany. Okay. Just making yeah. sure. He was fairly... <laughs> Her mother later remarried, but I guess she had a similar taste in men because her new stepfather was apparently, like, just an asshole to Marianne. Oh, that's not The nice. two disagreed and butted heads about the simplest of things, which would lead to uh, Mary's mother kicking her out of the house at age 16. Oh. Yeah. Also that year, she got pregnant, which she placed up for adoption at 18. She had her second child, which she also placed up for adoption at uh, eight. Sorry. Ooh. So when she was 16, she got pregnant and placed the kid up for adoption. And then two years later, when she was 18, she got pregnant again. Okay. When she was 22, she started dating the manager at her job. She worked at a little bar in Germany. She got pregnant, only this time she kept the baby. And Anne, or sorry, Anna Bachmeyer was born. Marianne wasn't rolling in dough, so she couldn't afford like a nanny or a babysitter. But since her boss was also the father, Marianne brought her baby to the bar while she worked. That's convenient. Anna would often spend most of her time at the bar while her mother was working or partying at the bar. When Anna was eight, she got into an argument with her mother and decided to skip school that day. While out on the town, Anna ran into uh, a butcher named Klaus Grabowski, who they they kind of met a couple times, and he let him or he let her play with pet cats. So mm. she kind of trusted him a little bit, and she went to his house. Uh, and once she got there, things took a turn for the worst. Oh, no. Klaus sexually assaulted Anna for hours and later that day oh. strangled her with her, his fiance's tights. Oh. Uh, Klaus shoved Anna's body into a suitcase and tossed her into the canal nearby. How old was she? Wait. Your um, mic cut out. 
Did you say eight? She's eight. Okay. Yeah. Eight years old. Okay. The one that comes after seven. <laughs> <laughs> Your mic was cutting out, so literally yeah, all I, I heard I was, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't hear eight. So, okay. <laughs> um, God, where was I? Okay. So once Klaus's fiance returned home, she immediately went to the police to report him. Klaus was promptly arrested. Good. Grabowski was a convicted sex offender and had previously been sentenced to sexual abuse of two girls. Ugh. In 1975, he voluntarily submitted to chemical castration. Those later revealed that he had subsequently went under, uh, underwent hormone treatment to try and reverse the castration. Yeah. Almost a year after the arrest, Klaus stood trial for the murder. On the third day of the trial, Marianne snuck a Beretta 70, which is a small pistol that shoots 22 or 380. She snuck it into courtroom 157 of the Ludbeck District Court. Marianne approached Klaus, stuck the Beretta into his back, and pulled the trigger seven times. Six of those shots hit Klaus in the back, killing him instantly. Marianne okay. was promptly arrested without resistance. The news of this spread all throughout Germany, and uh, soon reporters flooded Marianne's town. Marianne was able to sign the rights to her story. Uh, sign. Marianne was able to sign away the rights of the story of her life to reporters, which covered her entire legal fees. She sold nice. it for about uh, 100,000 Deutsch. I think that's what it's called. Okay. Um, on the 2nd of November, 1982, Bachmeier was initially charged in court with murder. Later, the prosecution dropped the murder charge after 28 days of negotiations. The board agreed on the verdict. Four months after the opening of the proceedings, she was convicted on uh, March 2nd, 1983 by the court, Circuit Court Chamber of the District Court of Ludbeck for manslaughter and unlawful possession of a firearm. She was sentenced to six years and released after only serving three. <laughs> okay. Mom's revenge. Right <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm not going to say I feel bad for that guy. I don't think the judge did either. She only did three years for yeah. killing someone in court. Well, I mean, yeah. very sad. Yeah, it is, but well, it has a good ending, I guess. Not as good as yeah. the Jeff Doucette ending, but true. Still true. Well. Do you have a chaser for us today? I do. It's an Instagram account. Okay. It's called deputy underscore dog underscore radar. And it's... Oh, I've done that one. Oh, you have? Yeah. Oh, maybe that's why I'm following them. <laughs> <laughs> Where okay, he feeds him treats through the car. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me find this other one. 
What is your chaser while I find mine? Okay. So my chaser is um, a thing called Weatherspoons the Game. I saw this article. It's a drinking game, but it's not a drinking game where you get drunk. So basically it's um, about this bar in the UK that has over 800 locations. It's a big chain apparently. And if you want to play the game, you have to join their Facebook uh, group for Weatherspoons, the game. And then people go on there and post why someone should buy them a drink. So they put on there like, I'm having a really bad day at work and I could use a drink. And then strangers go on there and see their post and then buy them a drink because the bar has an app where you can send, so you can like order digitally, but you have to put in like what your table number is. So if you want a drink, you go on there, you post your, this is why I need a drink. This is my table number. And then random people from wherever go onto the app and buy a drink based on that table number. Sweet. Yeah, it was super cool. I thought that was fun. I wonder like how often it's used. Well, there's over 500,000 people in the Facebook group. Jesus. Yeah, it was like close to 500. I think it was like I looked at it this morning and it was like 544,000 people. (laughs) Yeah. And I I guess sometimes if you you have a good enough story, I guess a lot of people will buy the drink. And then if you've got too many drinks and other people give it away to other people in the bar. They're like, I've already had enough, so somebody else can have my drink. That's funny. Yeah, I thought that was cool. My chaser is another Instagram account. It's diorama underscore restaurant. And it's like a little cafe, and they have a big train set like built into the whole wall like multiple trains are running on it and they they have like probably 10 cats that just play on the train set and they put a camera on one of the trains and you can see like drive past the cats and it's the camera's like set up so it looks like the cats are giants just like (laughs) knocking over trains and stuff (laughs) It's really funny. Oh, my God. I love that. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds hilarious. Because they'll just start chasing him. And, like, you can see the train drivers trying to get it to, like, run away from the cats. And then they'll just knock (laughs) I like it. That's cool. All right. That That wraps wraps us up. up. Yes, it does. Love you, Mom. Love you too, bud. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. 
but maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.